This is Heisenberg. Audible Studios presents Pile of Bones, written by Michael J. Sullivan, performed by Tim Gerard Reynolds, with Michael J. Sullivan. Author's Note Hello, my name is Michael J. Sullivan, and I want to thank you for your interest in my short story, Pile of Bones. I know the title may sound a bit ominous, but this is a generally light-hearted adventure tale of a young mystic and her wolf who explore the mysteries behind a waterfall. Why did I write this? Well, to answer that question, I have to take you back to the summer of 2011, when my self-published series, The Rayer Revelations, was being re-released by Orbit. They asked me to stop selling my versions of the books in advance of their publication, This left a void of several months when I had nothing available for sale. As it happens, I'm lucky to have married a genius who is also my biggest fan and a staunch reader's advocate. Her name is Robin, and she asked me to write something to fill that void. The result was a short story called The Viscount and the Witch. For Ryera veterans, it served up a little adventure with their favorite pair of rogues, It also provided a fun, short, and free introduction for people who weren't familiar with my writing. When we started working with the folks from Audible Studios, Robin came up with the idea of creating some additional shorts and making them available for free to Audible listeners. And so, The Jester and Professional Integrity were recorded. Since their release, these stories have been downloaded more than 400,000 times and are still available for free. If you like Pile of Bones, you might want to give them a listen. At present, we plan to publish the last two books of my Legend of the First Empire series in February and May of 2020. The audio version will be released by Audible Studios, and for the ebook and print version, we have returned to our self-publishing roots. To fund printing the tens of thousands of hardcovers, we've utilized a Kickstarter platform. As a reader's advocate, Robin is always looking to provide a number of bonus perks for people who buy directly from us. So, once again, she asked me to write a short story. But this one would have three requirements. First, it needed to star Ciri and Mina, two of her favorite characters from My Legends of the First Empire. Second, she wanted it to be fun as humor is part of what has made my Ryera shorts so popular. Third, it had to be spoiler-free. This short was created as a perk for my existing fans, but Robin knew it could also be a great gateway for new readers. The result, as you probably have already surmised, is Pile of Bones. After seeing the success of the free Ryera audio shorts, Robin approached Audible Studios, who agreed to produce and publish Pile of Bones. What's more, they were generous enough to make it free for a limited time. Since this author's note is for the audiobook, I'm able to express my immense love for this format, and I also get to highlight something important, one of the great secrets to my success. I am, of course, referring to the incomparable Tim Gerard Reynolds. I'm honored to have one of the best narrators in the business. Tim has currently recorded 15 of my works, including 11 novels. 
In March, he'll make that an even dozen by narrating Age of Empire. My admiration for Tim has no bounds. I'm not exaggerating when I say that hearing him read my work is the best part of the production process. Robin and I have sat in on six recordings, and each time it has been a thrill. Even if you don't find my writing style to be your cup of tea, I implore you to please, please pick up other works that Tim has narrated. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Just as Robin is a reader's advocate, I'm a champion for audiobook narrators. Their contributions shouldn't be underestimated. And I feel they are often unsung heroes when it comes to a book's success. I hope Tim doesn't mind if I take a minute to tell you about his amazing career. He is a best-selling audiobook narrator with more than 300 titles under his belt. In 2016, he was presented a Reddit Stabby Award for his contributions to the fantasy genre. Tim was a 2019 Audie Award nominee for Best Performance by a Male Narrator, and he has previously been a five-time Audie nominee, including his first nomination for my Theft of Swords novel. Tim is the recipient of multiple Audiophile Earphone Awards and has twice been listed in Audiophile Magazine's Best of the Year. Among the 2016 fantasy audiobook bestsellers, Tim read three out of the top five books, including my novel, Age of Myth. While I hope this little author's note was worth your time, and more importantly, I'm crossing my fingers that you'll find Pile of Bones to be a fast, fun, and enjoyable adventure, if you do, I have plenty of other stories waiting. I already mentioned the two free charts, which will give you a good introduction to the Ryura Tales. You can start those books with either Theft of Swords, for people who like to read in order of publication, or The Crown Tower, for those who prefer their tales told chronologically. But if you want to see more of Siri and Mina, then you should dive into Age of Myth. It's the first in the six-book series, Legends of the First Empire. And as I mentioned, the last book will be released by Audible Studios in May 2020. And with this preamble over, I invite you to sit back, relax, and listen as Tim tells you the tale of a young girl, her best friend, and what they find behind a waterfall in the world of Alon. Sori wondered if it would hurt to lose a limb. If her arm were torn off, the pain would no doubt be excruciating, but the ash tree with the missing branch was quiet. No screaming, not so much as a whimper. The tree, which clutched the cliff near the top of the waterfall, remained quiet, and Suri, who sat on a huge rock in the middle of the stream, was impressed. Large and dignified, the old ash, who went by the name of Eshi, wasn't the sort to blubber. His elderberry cousins, who grew in the highlands, might moan or whine, and a willow, well, a willow would sob continuously for a month, but not Eshi. In general, ashes weren't the sort to complain. They were a noble, tough breed of wood. Even so, Eshi was more steadfast than most. During the previous spring, Sori had witnessed a woodpecker stabbing at Eshi's bark for an entire day, and the tree hadn't so much as flinched. Now he was exhibiting the same sort of stoic perseverance. Sori was certain she would cry if their roles were reversed. 
Eshi's limb, which had fallen into the stream, had been a big one, a lower bow, as thick as Suri. Not that she was all that stout. The juniper sapling down by the frog pond always proclaimed the girl to be skinny, which was a clear case of the fern calling the oak green. Still, there was no denying the truth in the sapling's assertion. Suri was small for her age. Tura had speculated that Suri was likely eleven, but the girl felt confident she was a full twelve and a half. And for a twelve and a half year old girl, she was unquestionably small. Not squirrel small, obviously, or even fawn small, but certainly lower limb of the old ash small. Even as slight as it was, the branch had landed at the edge of a waterfall, and it was large enough to divert a small amount of the river's flow. From Sori's stone perch, the torrent now looked like a partially drawn curtain. Seeing the disruption raised two important questions. The first had gnawed at Suri so many times that she had considered performing an experiment of her own to solve the puzzle. Can I stop a waterfall if I lie in the stream right where the water spills over the edge? That answer was apparently no. Now that the branch had fallen, Suri could see that it was actually thicker and longer than she. This fact was something Suri was willing to admit to herself, but never in a million years would she concede the point to the juniper sapling. If that fallen limb wasn't enough to entirely block the water, and it wasn't because only a foot-wide gap was being cut out of the falling curtain, Suri had her answer on that score. The second question, the one that Suri couldn't believe she'd never wondered about before, was, what's behind the waterfall? In her own defense, Suri had no reason to expect anything except a solid rock face that matched the rest of the cliff. But that's not what she was now looking at. Do you see that? Do you? There's a tunnel under there. She turned to Mina for her reaction. The wolf, sitting on the river's bank, yawned. Don't give me that. We need to see where it goes. Mina yawned again. This was unexpected. Mina had always been interested in exploration. Together, she and Suri had investigated nearly every cave, meadow, hollow, and thicket in the forest, and most of those places hadn't appeared half as interesting as this. Suri displayed her indignation by placing not just one but both hands on her hips. Are you seriously telling me you're not the least bit curious? The wolf made no reply. Suri then used both hands to point at the gap in the drapery of falling water. A tunnel, one that goes behind a waterfall. How has this been here all our lives and neither of us knew about it? It's like waking up to discover you live on the back of a turtle or something. This is... She struggled for a word that could sum up the monumental magnitude of the revelation. Big. No, it's huge. If not for the storm last night, we'd still have no idea. None at all. She stood up, leaned over, and stared at the dark crack in the stone that glistened from the wet. It could go anywhere. It might lead to Nog. Mina lay down. Suri's hands returned to her hips. You don't believe in Nog? Ha! Let me tell you something, oh wise one. I was there. What do you think about that? She grinned at the wolf. Tora said I was stolen by Grimbles and taken there, but I escaped. I was just a baby at the time, 
must have crawled out on my hands and knees. There's just no other explanation for Tura finding me alone in the forest the way she did. Mina panted, her tongue dangling. Okay, I see what you're saying. If I had been stolen away to that magical realm but was lucky enough to escape, then exploring a crack that might take me back there again would make me as crazy as a weasel drunken winter wine. She nodded. Sensible conclusion, as always. Suri thought a moment, tapping a finger to her lips. Aha! She raised that same finger in protest. But what if I wasn't kidnapped? What if I was saved? What if my parents were cruel? They might have been beating and starving me, and the Crimbles took me away to their world to protect me from the evils of this one. Nog could be a beautiful place, filled with free-flowing honey and ripe strawberries. Suri saw the blank stare Mina was giving her, and sighed. I suppose you are wondering, if that were the case, why would I have left Nog and crawled back here in the first place? The wolf began licking the fur on her foreleg. Oh, Suri said, surprised. Sorry, I didn't mean to put words in your mouth. My mistake. But maybe I was just too young to realize that they were doing me a favor. Suri looked back at the crag, then up at the ash. Eshi wasn't as ancient or as majestic as the old oak Magda, but the way he cast a shadow from the top of the falls, like a giant draped in a luxurious green cloak, was impressive. Grand as Eshi might be, and as tragic as the loss of his limb was, Fribblebibble couldn't be pleased with having such a huge obstruction dividing the water of his stream. It ruined the aesthetics of the falls. Granted, Fribblebibble wasn't normally one for vanity, never the kind of river spirit to get twisted into knots over appearances. The very idea of water tying itself into a knot was absurd, but the branch was interfering with the flow, and Fribblebibble was all about cascading. It won't stay that way, Suri told Mina. Fribblebibble is going to push that branch off. Suri was certain the wolf knew this, but it was a great excuse for saying the name Fribblebibble out loud. She liked the way the sound tumbled out of her mouth. Fribblebibble won't let it stay there long, so we don't have time to argue about this further. Mina continued to lick her fur, something Suri couldn't understand. The two were sisters, both of them found alone in the same forest, and taken in by Tura as infants. They each enjoyed a good late-night run, sleeping in the shade and basking in the sun. They each preferred fish when they could get it, and loved howling at the dark. But licking fur was where they parted ways. Suri hated getting hair in her mouth, but Mina didn't mind at all. Fine, stay here if you want. I'm going to have some fun. Suri was in the mood to explore. A recent storm had attacked the forest and kept Suri, Mina, and the old mystic Tura trapped in their little home beside the famous hawthorn tree that gave the glen its name. The three of them had huddled around the flickering glow of the fire in the hearth, listening to the wind howl. It's the north wind singing his farewell, Tura had said. Suri believed Tura because the mystic was as old as most trees and perhaps a few stones. She knew everything that was worth knowing about. But while the old mystic was right, the North Wind wasn't a particularly gifted singer. His howl didn't sound anything like the way Suri and Mina harmonized their bays, making a beautiful, mournful, and yet sweet sound. 
the north wind, who went by the less formal name of Gale, just shrieked. Not only was Gale's goodbye refrain off-key, it lasted too long. The storm had rattled and ravaged the forest for a day and a night. Suri didn't like being trapped inside, and she had more reason than most to hate being enclosed. Six years before, while investigating a fox den, she had been nearly buried alive, and she remained trapped for three days. For months after that, she'd refused to go inside their little cottage, and she slept in the garden until good old Gale brought his buddy Winter to the Crescent. When the nights eventually turned bitterly cold, she was forced to go back inside, but even then, she slept right next to the door. Tura was always telling Sori that she needed to conquer that fear, and the young mystic did try. Her curiosity helped. Exploring the caves and crevices along the Burn River was a positive first step. Going inside the dark, wet caverns was scary, but in a good, heart-pounding way. Doing so was made easier because Suri always had Mina with her. Being brave was easy with a sister at your side, especially when that sibling was a big and wise wolf. Last chance, Suri said. When the wolf didn't even look over, Suri tossed off her tattered wool cape and carefully untied her belt of bear teeth. She coiled it inside the wrap for safekeeping. Then she waded into the deep pool. It was springtime, and the water was cold. Not bite your tongue and curse your mother cold, like when ice covered the lake, but it took quite some effort for Suri not to cry out. Looking back at Mina, she forced a grin. Water's great! Suri swam fast, aiming for the separation in the curtain where the surface of the little lake wasn't dancing from the falling water. She passed through and found a slippery ledge. Hoisting herself up, she got to her feet on a convenient stone shelf, which was a good two feet behind the falling water. How has this escaped my notice for so long? Under the falls, the crash of water was deafening, made louder by echoes coming from the cave behind it. Peeking in, Suri couldn't see much except that it was tall and narrow. Too narrow. Can't spend your whole life being terrorized of entrapment? Tora had said. Fear, for the most part, is your friend. It keeps you alive and stops you from doing stupid stuff like trying to fly or jumping in a fire. But when you're scared of something you ought not to be, well then, there's just nothing for it but to grit your teeth, spit in its eye, and challenge your dread to an arm wrestle. That's the best way to get past it. Just got to get in there and take charge of things. Let your fear know you're not going to stand for its silliness. Suri peered into the dark cleft in the stone, shaking. While she wanted to believe, she shivered because of the cold pool or the chilly mist drummed up by the turbulent waters. She knew better. She was scared. And even more so because she was... Mina came into view, her head bobbing across the surface of the pool. Her tall ears twitched, tossing off droplets. Claws raked the stone as the wolf joined Suri on the rock shelf beneath the falls, and she gave a massive shake, throwing water in all directions. The fear that had clutched Suri's heart a moment before was also shaken off. I knew you'd come, Suri grinned. Together, they entered the crack that narrowed further as it descended into the cliff. 
As her eyes adjusted to the dim light that filtered through the falling water, Suri noticed the unmistakable outline of a door. Almost anyone else would have seen nothing but an oddly straight irregularity in the stone, a queerly symmetrical bevel. But Suri knew it was an opening. She understood the truth of the matter in the same way she perceived most things of this sort. Something told her. She didn't hear an actual voice. No one whispered in her ear, Psst, door here. Suri understood it as a notion that had popped into her head, but the feeling wasn't her own. This happened to her fairly often, and the understanding that the ideas came from somewhere else was obvious in cases where the thoughts opposed her natural inclinations. Once, when she saw a beehive for the first time, she thought it was a fruit and planned to hit it with a stick to knock it down. As she picked up a stout switch, a thought had popped into her mind suggesting that hitting it wasn't such a good idea. So odd was this cautionary thought, as no one who knew her would ever accuse Suri of being prudent, that it caused her to chuckle. After striking the hive several times, Suri stopped laughing. Tura explained such feelings easily enough. How is it you think the squirrels know to gather nuts for the winter? How do spiders know the pattern for a web? How do birds learn how to build nests? Your intuition is the same thing. You're hearing a land, the world, speaking to you. Being stubborn and not remotely careful, Suri originally struggled to heed the alerts, but after enough painful lessons, she learned to pay better attention. Once she'd started to take note, Suri became aware of more than mere warnings. She began hearing the same announcements that other things in the forest did, like the one that went out every autumn to tell the birds who didn't like snow to take flight. She knew when bad weather was coming, even while the sky was still blue. She could tell when the murderous bear, Grin the Brown, was in the area. In this same way, she knew that the vaguely rectangular outline in the stone wall at the back of the crevice was a door. The only question remaining then was how to open it. The door to their little cottage was opened merely by pushing on it, while a string tied to a bunch of stones closed the door with their weight. Sori pushed on the stone. Nothing happened. She turned to the wolf with a grin. We have ourselves a challenge, Mina. Puzzles were always fun and took a plethora of forms. The most obvious were the various incarnations of the string game. Tora had introduced her to the amusement that could be obtained by taking a loop of string and weaving patterns between her fingers. The old mystic only showed Suri one design, then left her apprentice to build on it. Listen to Alan. If a spider can hear how to weave, so can you. Another great puzzle, equally challenging and infinitely more exciting, was how to climb a tree. Each one was a complex maze of branches. Finding the right route to the top was difficult and risky, often dangerous, sometimes life-threatening. Climbing trees more than any other activity honed Suri's skill at hearing and listening to the voice of Alan. In the high branches, tests were pass-fail, and often... Failure was not an option. Suri loved puzzles, and this stone door showed every indication of being a marvellous one. 
Not only was it a unique challenge, but opening it came with the added reward of discovery. What is behind such an incredible door? She went on to try every manner of shoving, sliding, hammering, and kicking. None of it worked. She was glad, because such a solution would be too easy. Standing back, Suri rhythmically tapped the tips of her fingers together, pondering the situation. The door, or the outline of it, was shorter and wider than the one they had at home. This made her suspect the entrance was indeed to Nog, since Crimbles were known to be little creatures. In a wood as big as the Crescent Forest, the magical folk were reputed to have hundreds or even thousands of doors leading into their realm. Tora had told her countless tales of people accidentally falling through such portals as mushroom rings, hollow trees, and still ponds. Suri couldn't recall a single story with a stone door, much less one that couldn't be opened, but that did nothing to dissuade her. After all, keeping outsiders from entering the Crimble's world was usually the point of the stories. As a result, the legends were no help. Suri began to pace up and down the length of the narrow crevice, her wet feet slapping the stone. It didn't help her think, but she did feel a bit warmer. Mina opted for sitting down, but she had a thick fur coat. What do you think? Suri finally asked when pacing in the small space made her dizzy. Mina began once more to lick the fur on her foreleg. The other one this time. Oh, don't start that again. We have a puzzle to solve. Honestly, Mina, your head just isn't in the game today. Suri stopped, folded her arms, and stared at the door. What do we know? The door is short and wide. It's made of stone, and it refuses to open through any normal means. Hmm. That would suggest the maker did not want people entering. It's also not easy to see, which supports the same idea. So all we have to do is consider what would a person do to prevent us from getting in? Sorry tilted her head left and then right. An epiphany dawned, and she stood on her head. Viewing the door from upside down, she hoped the new perspective would reveal a secret. It didn't. She sat on the floor after that, her back against the wall. With her legs stretched out, her toes could almost touch the door. After some time, she sighed in defeat. Turning upside down had given her a headache, and it was difficult to think, except the door is short. She said this as much to herself as to Mina, which was just as well, given that the wolf was now completely occupied by licking the water off her fur. Standing on her head had gotten Suri thinking about which way was up and height in general. Some birds build nests elevated in trees to keep their eggs safe. Squirrels climb to higher branches to escape bigger animals. Suri looked up. She did so not merely because of her series of observations, but on account of the thought popping into her head. Initially, she'd theorized that turning upside down might have caused the notion to break free and drop into her mind. But that didn't seem right in this case. When Elan whispered, her voice was rarely familiar because, being everything, she must have so many. For this reason, hearing her was easy, but listening difficult. Suri would often experience a flash of insight, 
then ignore the idea, believing it to be one of her many pointless thoughts. The notion of looking up, however, didn't feel like Suri's idea at all. That was the clue. Looking up was a suggestion given to her. Suri stood and studied the top of the outline. The bevel made a little shelf, one just above her eyesight. To someone shorter, a crimble, it might seem very high indeed. And high up, according to mother birds, meant safe. Suri reached as far as she could and let her fingers feel along the top edge, exploring what her eyes couldn't see. The stone was smooth, polished to a glossy finish, and perfect without any variance, except one. Oddly, the imperfection wasn't on the shelf, and her fingertips didn't find it, but her palm had brushed by an inconsequential bulge on the surface of the door. Examining it more closely, Suri discovered a tiny diamond-shaped protrusion. Placing her palm on it, she pressed. Nothing should have happened. Suri was pressing on solid stone, and yet the diamond gave way. The instant it did, the stone door began to move. We did it! Suri exclaimed, jumping back. Mina abandoned her grooming and got to her feet. The two watched as a giant stone slab slid sideways. A brilliant green glow emanated from inside, and for a moment, Suri wondered if she'd done the right thing. I don't really want to go back to Nog. Suri didn't think it would be so bad if Mina came with her, but Tora would wonder where she'd gone. It wouldn't be right not to tell her. Suri considered just taking a peek and only going in for a few minutes. But that was how all the stories started. A visitor would enter for just a moment or two. But upon returning home, they'd find that a hundred years had passed. As it turned out, Suri didn't need to worry. The door didn't lead to Nog. Behind the slab of stone was a room, not much larger than their cottage, but a lot less cozy. It's difficult to squeeze homey out of rock. The place was cold and hard, but that was the nature of stone. The area was round and had a domed ceiling, just how Suri imagines living under a mushroom cap might look. Thick stone pillars set in a circle held up the dome. Decorating the walls were strange markings. In the center of the floor, a mostly submerged, giant, glowing green ball gave off an eerie light that filled the place with a disturbing radiance. Because light normally came from the sky, having anything lit from underneath seemed unnatural. Add to that the sickly green color, and the chamber appeared absolutely creepy. Chests and boxes formed shadowy figures in the dim light, and what might be a water well was near the back. A five-foot-high stack of dead wood was piled pretty much in the center of the room. The heap covered most of the glowing stone, making the whole thing look like the smoldering embers from a magical fire. Suri smiled with delight. Tura often sent her off to find wood for their fire, but the process was arduous. In summer, plants hid the fallen branches, and in winter, the snow made it impossible to locate anything dry. Here, Suri had come upon a treasure, a surplus of sheltered, dry, and seasoned wood. 
Looking closer, though, she needed only a few seconds to realize her mistake. The pile wasn't wood at all. She was repulsed to discover that it was a huge stack of white bones. The skulls around its base were what gave away her oversight. Hard to mistake a pair of eye sockets and a row of teeth for a log. Bones, she said to Mina. Neither one had set a single toe inside the room. They both stood at the doorway, Mina's white fur turned emerald by the glow. What do you think this is? The wolf lifted her nose and sniffed, then presented the sour expression she put on when she didn't find her supper appealing. Suri didn't like the smell of the place either. The odor was similar to a fetid pond or an abandoned deer kill. The chamber clearly wasn't Nog. So after checking to make certain the door wouldn't close behind her, Suri had Mina wait while she crept in. Moving carefully, she circled the pile and immediately noticed two things. First, being in the room was drastically different from being outside. She felt like she'd gone underwater. There was a terrible muffled sensation, as if she'd entered a bubble, or someone had put a bag over her head. Suri felt strangely cut off from the rest of the world in a way she never had before. She repeatedly looked toward Mina, reassuring herself the exit was still clear. The thought of being trapped in such a place pushed her courage to the limit. Grit your teeth, spit in its eye, and challenge your dread to an arm wrestle. Easy to say in a sunny garden with daffodils all around. Not so simple. That's when Sori noticed the second thing. All the skulls on the pile were facing out. They're watching me. The question, the conundrum that caused Suri to lose her arm wrestling contest was, were they facing that way when I opened the door? She couldn't remember, and in her confusion, she knew that they were indeed watching. Each pair of empty eye sockets was trained on Suri, and not one looked happy or welcoming. Most seemed to have sinister grins, although some had no lower jaw at all. In another moment, Suri was positive one would try to talk. The idea of a skull without a jaw struggling to speak was several running jumps past disturbing. The certainty that it would shriek in some horribly high-pitched way set Suri running. Her foot caught the pile and sent bones skipping across the floor. Once outside, Suri slammed the bump on the wall and set the door to closing. She knelt and squeezed Mina. There was no better remedy for fear than hugging the soft fur of a wolf. When the door clicked shut, the light disappeared and the smell vanished. Suri could breathe again. She let go of Mina and was moving to stand when she touched something cold. For a brief instant, she glared at the foot-long bone, thinking it had chased her. Then Suri realized this had been one of those she had kicked, and the only one lucky enough to clear the doorway and escape. Outside the room, away from the green glow, the bone was ordinary, good-sized and clean. She picked it up, surprised at how light it was. Hollow, she guessed. Must have been a really big bird. I could make a flute out of this. Tora had many flutes. Some were made out of hollow sticks, but a few were created from the wing bone of a turkey or the leg bone of a lamb or deer. None were as big or as hefty as this one. 
since Suri felt cheated out of her treasure of deadwood, she wanted to take away something from the adventure. A flute, her first flute, would be just the thing. Why a pile of bones had been hidden inside a secret stone room was a question best sealed behind the now-closed door. Found a bone, did you? Tora asked as Sori and Mina returned. The old mystic was perched on the sitting rock, just outside the door of their cottage, weaving a basket from a pile of willow branches. She had on her summer linen, belted with the leather strap that wound around her waist half a dozen times and still dangled down to her ankles. Seeing the long strap always made Sori wonder if Tora had been much bigger long ago. Perhaps she was once a giant, or had been born a bear and grown into a woman. What will I be when I grow up? Such endless possibilities are available. A thought struck her. So why did Tora choose to be an old woman? Suri would have chosen to be a swift, a finch, or perhaps even a hummingbird. Definitely something that could fly. An old woman, with her sagging skin and brittle white hair, wouldn't even crack the top 100. Suri held up her prize and smiled. Yep, found it under the waterfall. Thought I'd make a flute of it. You can show me, right? Tura took the bone and turned it over and back. As she did, her eyes narrowed. Found this in the pool? No, ma'am. Suri shook her head and grinned at Mina. We found a secret room behind the waterfall. Suri expected shock surprise and excitement. She imagined Tora responding with, how in Erland did the two of you find such a marvelous secret as a hidden place? Instead, Tora merely nodded. So, there's one under there, too. Disappointed, Suri frowned. There's more than one? Two that I know of. Father showed me the first. I discovered the second on my own. Tura's father was a topic Sori had long been interested in, but the old mystic rarely spoke of him. Sori only knew that ages ago he had brought Tura to the forest from a settlement in the south, and the two had lived in the glen for years and years before Sori had appeared. By then, Tura's father had left. Where he'd gone, Tura never said, making Sori think that Tura didn't know. Every time Tura spoke about him, she got weepy, and changed the subject, which frustrated Suri. She wanted to know more because Tura's father had predicted that Tura would find a baby in the forest, and he'd told her to raise the girl as a daughter and train her to be a mystic. How he'd known about Suri was a mystery that continually tantalized her. Tura's father had told Tura he would come back, and she constantly waited for his return. Since he was right about the abandoned infant, Suri waited too. I don't know that you want to make a flute of this, Tora said. Why not? Suri snatched it back and held it up, looking for what imperfection she might have missed. What's wrong with it? Nothing, except it's a human bone. Tora slapped her forearm. From right here. Suri looked perplexed. Then she held out the bone and compared it with Tora's arm. They were roughly the same size. She's right. I don't want to put my lips to a stranger's elbow. I'm surprised you didn't know. The rest of the skeleton must have been there. 
I guess some injured soul crawled in and died. Suri shook her head. Not like that, not at all. This was the only bone you found? Not like that either. Doubly disappointed that Tora was not impressed with her discovery and that the bone wouldn't be made into a flute, Suri was losing interest in the conversation. What then? Tora asked. Room had a big pile in the middle. Thought it might be firewood, but no. Turns out this whole day is just one big disappointment. A pile of bones, Tora said, looking at Suri's one-time prospect for a flute. Human bones are stacked in a hidden room under the waterfall. Since Suri had just explained all that, and it wouldn't make sense for the old woman to be asking again, Suri guessed Tora had been speaking to the bone. Tora spoke to many things, and a bone wouldn't make a list of the most unusual. Tora didn't press, reinforcing Suri's guess. But it left her wondering if the bone had responded, and if so, what had it said? Suri's curiosity grew when Tora stood up. The old woman ducked into their home and re-emerged wearing her old cloak, staff in hand. You should stay here, Tora told her. Check the garden and wash the strawberries. Where are you going? I have an errand to run. This was Tora's all-purpose response for something she didn't want Suri to know about. No amount of questions or degree of persistence or volume of tears would pry the truth from the mystic. Errands were things that had to be done. Never were they pleasant or enjoyable. So Suri needn't fear missing out on something fun. Tora had assured her of this many times before. So Suri didn't protest, and Tora set off up the trail. But she paused partway and looked back. How big is this pile? Suri shrugged. About as tall as me. Tora nodded grimly. Don't wait up then. I might be late. The garden grew on the sunny side of their cottage. Suri viewed it as part of their home, the better part, the portion without roof or door. In late summer, there would be towering sunflowers and sprawling vines of pumpkins and squash. The border of the garden would be in bloom with an abundance of peonies, bellflowers, and bachelor's buttons. This was where the onions lived, along with tomatoes, beans, carrots, and cucumbers. Few of them ever bickered, but the pumpkins and squash constantly warred over territory, and the poor flowers, trapped beneath the combatants' broad leaves, grumpily refused to bloom if not treated better. A small spring-fed pond was nearby, and gave birth to a tiny creek that trickled and laughed. There were several perfect sitting stones to rest on, and a moss-enriched walkway of flat stones that Tura had placed long ago. A waist-high stone wall draped in ivy formed a half-circle, but it existed only as a place to put unwanted rocks. The garden had no need for defense. Tora had long ago explained to the thieving raccoons, mooching deer, and pilfering crows that the garden was off-limits. The inhabitants of the wood knew better than to steal from Tora. The one exception was the ghoulgans, who were decidedly less intelligent than even a rabbit. These burrowing pests popped up in the garden with regularity and could not be reasoned with. What they lacked in intelligence, they made up for in cunning and persistence. They disguised themselves as plants and were equipped with thorny teeth to bite any who might attempt to evict them. 
Unlike groundhogs and squirrels, gulgans didn't grab and dash. They set up house. Once in, they spread and invited more of their kind to join them. When they reached out with their talons and strangled the carrots, smothered the beans, and starved even the great pumpkins and sunflowers of water, it was clear that the Gulgans' motives were pure malice. They never stole anything. They only murdered. When she was old enough, Tura appointed Suri Garden Sentinel, and it was her job to defend the flowers and vegetables from rampaging monsters. Gulgans were not terribly large, and Suri tore them out by hand, throwing them beyond the garden wall where they screamed and raged at her. This method, while effective, hurt because she was frequently bitten. The little monsters had small but sharp teeth. One day, Suri squared off with a particularly nasty Gulgan, who had slipped in unseen and established a firm stronghold behind the sitting stone, near the wall. She had tried to pull him out, but failed. During the battle, she had been badly bitten, and in her anger, Suri had cursed the Gulgan. To the best of her memory, she had called it a bridith, which was a new word Suri had learned from Tura. The old mystic had begun teaching her the divine language, saying it had special powers. And while Tura hadn't actually taught Suri that word, the mystic had used it often enough to express anger and pain that Suri felt confident she had used it correctly. As it turned out, a tad too correctly. The next morning, the Gulgan was dead. Suri found it withered and brown. Some parts were even black. More than that, a dozen other Gulgans in the vicinity were also dead, and for weeks afterward, the surviving ones stayed out of the garden altogether. But by virtue of being so dumb that they made rocks appear shrewd and dirt brilliant, the Gulgans eventually returned. Suri was forced to repeat her curse on a regular basis to keep the garden clear, and that evening, after Tura had set forth on her errand, Suri realized it had been quite some time since she'd screamed at the garden. As expected, the garden had once more been invaded by an army of ghoulgans. As night rolled in, she managed to spot fifty in the dim light. Suri sighed and shook her head. As awful as ghoulgans were, she took no pleasure in eradicating them. Death was a solemn event, like sunset or rain, common and necessary in the forest. One fallen tree made room for wildflowers and new saplings. Bigger animals ate smaller ones. But Suri noticed that the ones who killed never gloated. They didn't cheer or laugh or dance. Mina came over to watch. She sat on the grass beside the sitting stone near the wall, the site of Suri's first great battle, and waited. The wolf knew what was coming and yet each time looked surprised when Suri screamed her curse. Suri had gotten better at it over the years, and she was able to put real venom into her words. By morning, the garden would be brown with ghoulgan corpses. So, you possess a power, do you? A raspy voice asked. Suri jumped. Her eyes went wide as she stared at the garden, surprised the ghoulgans had learned speech but the voice hadn't come from them. The words had been uttered from the forest. Any speculation that the Gulgans had spoken was erased when the voice then asked, Where's my bone?
The voice did not sound pleasant. The words had less a tone and more a texture that was best summed up as bristly pinecone. It dragged out each word the way Grin the Brown hauled off her kills through tall grass, both accompanied by the same dry brush noise. Then, as if the words and the reality of a disembodied voice speaking to her from out of the shadows weren't enough to cause alarm, Mina began to growl. The wolf was an individual of few words, but when she spoke, wise were those who listened. Growling for Mina was tantamount to a declaration of war. Whatever was out there, Mina did not like it. Who are you? Suri asked. I don't have a name anymore. I don't need one. And you don't have the right to ask. You are a thief. A bone is missing from my pyre, and I want it back. Don't try to deny it. I followed your scent. Now give it to me. Okay, Suri said peering into the forest and seeing nothing. I'll get it. Suri had put the bone inside her cottage and set out to retrieve it when a thought popped into her head. Not a good idea. Don't turn your back on it. You're in danger. Be careful. All of this was crammed into her mind in the instant it took to begin a pivot. She stopped and noticed the branch of a cedar tree moving. Suri looked closely but the leaves and the growing darkness conspired against her. She saw nothing. After that, she walked backward. Don't trip. Whatever you do, don't fall. If you do, it'll be on you in an instant. Messages flooded her head as if she were downstream from a busted beaver dam. Maybe Alain spoke more when Sori was in trouble, or maybe Sori was just more attentive when scared. Either way, Alain had never been this chatty. It will be on me in a second. Suri didn't like the sound of that. What will? She forced herself to move slowly, dragging her heels to check for obstacles. Mina moved backward with her, having also likely heard the warning. Maybe it was her big ears, or how close she was to the ground. But Mina always heard Alan better than Suri, making the wolf wise beyond her years. Suri found the bone where she'd left it and carried it outside. Want me to just throw it to you? She asked this because all other alternatives gave her goose flesh. What kind of thing keeps bones? Even Grin doesn't do that. She eats them. Maybe that's what's going on here. The pile could be like a squirrel's storehouse of nuts, but it's spring, and there are a lot of bones, human bones. Don't be rude, child, the grit on a cat's tongue voice replied. Bring it to me. That's okay. I think I can tell where you are. I'll toss it. You stole the bone, forced me to come here. Have the decency to return it in a civil manner. I don't want to be rooting around in the brush to retrieve my property. Decency? Suri found the word an odd choice. They were, after all, talking about a human bone, which brought up an interesting thought. Where'd you get it? From a very handsome young man 
a beautiful fellow with a lovely face. Bring me his bone. Mina's ears twitched, and she growled again. Her lips pulled back this time, showing fangs. It's moving. I don't know how I know, but I'm sure. The owner of the pile is coming closer. The thought that the bone hunter might be invisible was more than a passing concern. Lots of things in the forest were impossible to see. The breezes, for one. Leshies, who could never be spotted in the daytime. And Gale himself, who was always a no-show. If the bone hunter was like them, Suri was in trouble. That was another idea that popped into her head, and with it came her own conclusion that the handsome fellow with the pretty smile hadn't just fallen over and died. He had been killed by the bone hunter, and now all of his bones were on the pile. His skull would be there, likely a jawless one that she had been frightened by. Perhaps the bone hunter doesn't just want what I took. Maybe it is after a new skull. And why did I just think it instead of him. You don't have to be afraid, the bone hunter said. It won't hurt. What won't? Suri asked. She didn't really want an answer. Who would? She only wanted the thing to keep speaking so she could guess where it was. The bone hunter didn't answer. What won't hurt? Suri asked again, louder. Still no answer. Run! Elan hadn't just slipped this thought into her head. The idea had exploded, as if every part of the world were screaming at her. Mina! Suri shouted, before bolting up the trail. She didn't really have concerns about the wolf. Mina was fast and proved it by passing Suri, leading the way in the growing dark. The sun might not have fully set outside the forest, but within the crescent, night came quickly, and with it fell a darkness that was nearly absolute. Suri didn't know where to run. Tora would be her best hope, but she hadn't seen which direction the mystic went. At that moment, Suri relied on the wisdom of Mina and followed her blindly down the path. When at a full run in the forest, few could catch Mina, and unfortunately, that included Suri. Soon after the race began, Mina outdistanced her sister, and the white wolf faded into the darkness. Before long, Suri grew tired. Not so much that she couldn't run, but enough that she could no longer sprint. She slowed down. It's catching up. This was another warning she assumed came from a land because it didn't make any sense. Mina was ridiculously fast and could run without stopping for hours. But Suri wasn't a slug. A deer, or even Grin the Brown, could catch her. But nothing that spoke of decency could. If Suri was tired, the bone hunter must be exhausted. It isn't. A ridiculous thought. If Sori had more air, she would have laughed, but I laughed before and suffered from bee stings for nearly a week. What will be the price this time? Apparently it didn't matter, as Sori couldn't go any faster. She knew she was going slower and slower. It doesn't get tired. This was a miserable thought. Her head was full of awful things that day. What am I going to do? This was a homegrown notion. She knew because it arrived with a degree of panic caused by the understanding that she didn't know the answer. Worse yet, Suri didn't think there was a solution. Not a helpful one, at least. 
puzzle it out. What? In her utter shock and disgust, Suri spoke the word out loud, wasting valuable air. Of all the times to be cryptic. Suri was rapidly running out of breath and speed, and she was also losing light. The trail she followed, which was less a path and more a vaguely eroded gap in the underbrush, was disappearing, and like Mina, it would soon be gone altogether. Trees on either side were phantom shapes. If she hadn't known the route like her tongue knew the back of her teeth, she would have taken a fall by now. It will be on me in a second. Suri still hadn't managed to answer the question of what it was. Puzzle it out. Suri wanted to scream but couldn't afford the breath. Puzzle, puzzle, puzzle. At this point, Suri had no idea if she was hearing anything or just losing her mind. She hadn't been this frightened since the time she'd nearly been buried alive. Thinking would become impossible once terror set in, but she wasn't there yet. If she heard something behind her, if she felt something, that's when fear would blindly reign. Puzzles are problems. String games are puzzles. I usually like puzzles. Not now. Right now I hate them. This one is awful. I like good puzzles, puzzles that are fun like... With the last fleeting haze of light, Suri saw something just ahead and on the right, the red oak. She called it the puzzle tree, Petrie for short. Petrie was one of her favorite climbs. The tree was huge and had a multitude of branches that made getting to the top a challenge. I can't keep running, but I can still climb. Suri still had the bone in her hand, and she stuffed it into her belt before leaping. She caught the lowest branch, the only one close enough to the ground to get hold of, and then up she went. She had climbed Petrie more than a dozen times and knew the route. Flip up, stand, then run across the branch. Climb left, find the knot, plant a foot, and push. Take a big stretch to the broken knob and then swing. The swing was one of the hardest parts. It had taken her days before she had enough courage to try. The nub was at least twenty feet off the ground, and falling from that height through the lower branches would break bones. Catch the forked branch, pull it down, get a grip. Up, right, left, left, right, and find the nest. The nest wasn't an actual roost, just a set of three branches near the top of the tree that formed a triangle and created a perfect seat. Suri planted her butt in the crux, hooked her arms around the branches, and looked down. Everything below her was darkness. Maybe I lost it. Suri waited, feeling the deep, slow sway of the tree that had once frightened her so, but at that moment was wonderful. She struggled to listen for any sounds of pursuit over the racket of her own gasps for air. By the Grandmother, I'm noisy. She wasn't the only one. Around her, Gale was playing in the branches, causing them to click and clack. Not nice of you to run away. The sound of the voice chilled her. Why don't you come down and give me that bone? Take it, Suri jerked it from her belt and threw the sound of a handsome man's arm tripped through the branches. A long pause followed. Sori waited. Is that it? Is that all I needed to do? 
Now, why don't you come down? Ah, oh, for the love of Fribblebibble, leave me alone. Alone, the teeth on stone voice said. But you are alone, all alone. Even your dog is gone. It's just you and me now. Time for us to get better acquainted. Do you know who I am? Don't know, don't care. I'm you in a hundred years of what you might have become if you hadn't stolen that bone. Don't you see? I'm going to do you a favor. You don't want to be me, do you? There's no way I could be like you. I don't even know what you are. I'm what those like you become. Little ones with power grow up to be big ones with desires. You don't want to die, do you? Suri wasn't certain if the voice was closer or not. Is it climbing? Can it figure out how? Took me days with daylight. Of course you don't. That's why you're in the tree. You're terrified of dying, and you've only been alive a few years. Imagine the lust for life after you've been living for several decades. And just picture how powerful you'll be by then, so potent that the rules won't apply to you. When the day comes to leave your body and move on, you'll refuse, same as I did. But there's a problem. Your body, your wonderful home for so long, is weaker than you are. It rots. That's why everyone else leaves. No one wants to live in a rotting shell. But you're powerful. You don't have to. You can keep it not perfect, but well enough. All you need is a good meal and some beauty sleep. The faces of those you eat keep you pretty and watch out for you, serve you in the hope that one day you will free them. You won't. You can't. They make your bed, and then you lie in it. That's when Petrie began to dance. Only once before had Suri been so high in a tree during a storm. She never wanted to do that again. This wasn't that. It was worse. Petrie shook so hard that Suri came out of the nest. If not for her two arms hugging the branches, she would have fallen. As it was, she dangled, legs kicking as the oak did a fine impression of Mina shaking off water. Suri finally knew what a droplet on a strand of wolf fur felt like. Then came the scream. Nothing living was capable of making a sound like that. A high-pitched, soul-chilling cry ripped through the night. Suri continued to hug her new friends, the limbs near the nest, whom she had grown to love in mere seconds. When Petrie stopped his acrobatics for a while, Suri took a chance and settled herself back in the nest and waited. Suri? Suri, are you up there? Tura called. Suri didn't answer. What if it impersonates people? How do I know you're really Tura? Because if you don't get down here this instant, 
Mina and I are going to go home and finish off the last of the strawberries, and you won't get any. The voice sounded like Tora's, and the brusque tone was unmistakable. Suri climbed down, which was difficult to do in the dark. Occasionally, she stopped to look below, to be sure an old woman and a wolf waited, and not some hideous creature. Hitting dirt, she found Tora and Mina digging a hole beside Petrie's roots. What are you doing? Suri asked. And where's the thing? Finishing up my errand, Tora explained. Tora? Suri looked around, concerned. There was a, I don't know, a, a row, Tora replied. Yes, it's gone now. Gone where? Tora looked at Petrie as if the two shared a secret. Doesn't matter, does it? What's more important is the strawberries. I don't know about you, but I'm starved. Tura had the bone that Suri had thrown. She placed it in the hole and covered it up with dirt. Patting the loose soil down, pressing it firm, she smiled. There, that's the last of it. Tura, what's a row? Strawberries, dear. Think about the strawberries. Are you pleading? Suri asked, seeing dark slashes across Tura's face that were dripping blood. Tora's cloak was shredded into ragged strips. She held her arm clutched to her side as if it was hurt. Tora, what's a row? What kind of a mystic will I be if I don't know everything you do? Tora sighed. There are some things we shouldn't ever know. Suri folded her arms in defiance. Tora frowned. Fine. A row is an evil spirit that invades a... Uh, a person. A person who is lost. Yes, that's it. There, now you know. I sealed this one up in the oak. Not the best choice. An ash would have been better, or even our hawthorn, but... She looked up at Petrie and patted the trunk. This old gal ought to do fine. Gal? Surrey said. I thought Petrie was a he. Petrie? Tura smirked. That's not right. Her name is Elva Turin. Why did you name her that? I didn't. My father did. The mystic winced as she started walking for home, leaning heavily on her staff. He has an obnoxious tendency to name everything after himself. Tura raised a finger toward the heavens and shouted, Onward to strawberries! This book is over, but the story continues. Keep listening after the credits to hear the beginning of Age of Myth, book one in the Legends of the First Empire series, free. This has been an Audible Studios production of Pile of Bones, written by Michael J. Sullivan, performed by Tim Gerard Reynolds with Michael J. Sullivan. Executive producers Kristen Lang and Mike Charzik, edited and mastered by Sarah Cosa Paglusa. Copyright 2019 by Michael J. Sullivan. Sound recording copyright 2019 by Audible Inc. Audible Studios is a division of Audible Inc. And now a free preview of Age of Myth, book one in the Legends of the First Empire series. Chapter One Of Gods and Men In the days of darkness before the war, Men were called runes. We lived in runeland, 
or Rulin, as it was once known. We had little to eat and much to fear. What we feared most were the gods across the Burn River, where we were not allowed. Most people believe our conflict with the fray started at the Battle of Granford, but it actually began on a day in early spring when two men crossed the river. The Book of Bryn Wraith's first impulse was to pray. Curse, cry, scream, pray. People did such things in their last minutes of life. But praying struck Wraith as absurd, given that his problem was the angry god twenty feet away. Gods weren't known for their tolerance, and this one appeared on the verge of striking them dead. Neither Wraith nor his father had noticed the god approach. The waters of the nearby converging rivers made enough noise to mask an army's passage. Wraith would have preferred an army. Dressed in shimmering clothes, the god sat on a horse and was accompanied by two servants on foot. They were men, but dressed in the same remarkable clothing. All three silent, watching. Hey, Wraith called to his father. Herkimer knelt beside a deer, opening its stomach with his knife. Earlier, Wraith had landed a spear in the stag's side, and he and his father had spent most of the morning chasing it. Herkimer had stripped off his wool limor, as well as his shirt, because opening a deer's belly was a bloody business. What? He looked up. Wraith jerked his head toward the god, and his father's sight tracked to the three figures. The old man's eyes widened, and the color left his face. I knew this was a bad idea. Wraith thought. His father had seemed so confident, so sure that crossing the Forbidden River would solve their problems. But he'd mentioned his certainty enough times to make Wraith wonder. Now the old man looked as if he'd forgotten how to breathe. Herkimer wiped his knife on the deer's side before slipping it into his belt and getting up. Ah, oh, Wraith's father began, Herkimer looked at the half-gutted deer, then back at the god. It's... okay. This was the total sum of his father's wisdom, his grand defense for the high crime of trespassing on divine land. Wraith wasn't sure if slaughtering one of the deity's deer was also an offense, but assumed it didn't help their situation. And although Herkimer said it was okay... His face told a different story. Wraith's stomach sank. He had no idea what he'd expected his father to say, but something more than that. Not surprisingly, the god wasn't appeased, and the three continued to stare in growing irritation. They were on a tiny point of open meadowland, where the Burn and North Branch rivers met. A pine forest, thick and rich, grew a short distance up the slope behind them. Down at the point where the rivers converged lay a stony beach. Beneath a snow-gray blanket of sky, the river's roar was the only sound. Just minutes earlier, Wraith had seen the tiny field as a paradise. That was then. 
Wraith took a slow breath and reminded himself that he didn't have experience with gods or their expressions. He'd never observed a god up close, never seen beech leaf shaped ears, eyes blue as the sky, or hair that spilled like molten gold. Such smooth skin and white teeth were beyond reason. This was a being born not of the earth, but of air and light. His robes billowed in the breeze and shimmered in the sun, proclaiming an otherworldly glory. The harsh, judgmental glare was exactly the expression Wraith expected from an immortal being. The horse was an even bigger surprise. Wraith's father had told him about such animals, but until then, Wraith hadn't believed. His old man had a habit of embellishing the truth, and for more than twenty years, Wraith had heard the tales. After a few drinks, his father would tell everyone how he'd killed five men with a single swing, or fought the north wind to a standstill. The older Herkimer got, the larger the stories grew. But this four-hooved tall tail was looking back at Wraith with large, glossy eyes. And when the horse shook its head, he wondered if the mounts of gods understood speech. No, really, it's okay. Wraith's father told them again, maybe thinking they hadn't heard his previous genius. I'm allowed here. He took a step forward and pointed to the medal hanging from a strip of hide amid the dirt and pine needles stuck to the sweat on his chest. Half-naked, sun-baked, and covered in blood up to his elbows, his father appeared the embodiment of a mad barbarian. Wraith wouldn't have believed him either. See this, his father went on. The burnished metal, clutched by thick, ruddy fingers, reflected the midday sun. I fought for your people against the Gularoons in the High Spear Valley. I did well. A Frey commander gave me this. Said I earned a reward. Durayan clan, the taller servant told the god. His tone somewhere between disappointment and disgust. He wore a rich-looking silver torque around his neck. Both servants did. The jewelry must be a mark of their station. The gangly man lacked a beard, but sported a long nose, sharp cheeks, and small, clever eyes. He reminded Wraith of a weasel or a fox, and he wasn't fond of either. Wraith was also repulsed by how the man stood, stooped, eyes low, hands clasped. Abused dogs exhibited more self-esteem. What kind of men travel with a god? That's right. I'm Herkimer, son of Heimdall, and this is my son Wraith. You've broken the law, the servant stated. The nasal tone even sounded the way a weasel might talk. No, no, it's not like that. Not at all. The lines on his father's face deepened, and his lips stretched tighter. He stopped walking forward, but held the medal out like a talisman, his eyes hopeful. This proves what I'm saying, that I earned a reward. See, I sort of figured we, he gestured toward Wraith, my son and I, could live on this little point. He waved at the meadow. We don't need much, 
Hardly anything, really. You see, on our side of the river, back in Duraya, the dirt's no good. We can't grow anything. And there's nothing to hunt. The pleading in his father's voice was something Wraith hadn't heard before and didn't like. You're not allowed here. This time it was the other servant, the balding one. Like the tall, weasel-faced fellow, he lacked a proper beard, as if growing one were a thing that needed to be taught. The lack of hair exposed in fine detail a decidedly sour expression. But you don't understand. I fought for your people. I bled for your people. I lost three sons fighting for your kind, and I was promised a reward. Herkimer held out the medal again, but the god didn't look at it. He stared past them, focusing on some distant, irrelevant point. Herkimer let go of the medal. If this spot is a problem, we'll move. My son actually liked another place west of here. We'd be farther away from you. Would that be better? Although the god still didn't look at them, he appeared even more annoyed. Finally, he spoke. You will obey. An average voice. Wraith was disappointed. He had expected thunder. The god then addressed his servants in the divine language. Wraith's father had taught him some of their tongue. He wasn't fluent, but he knew enough to understand the god didn't want them to have weapons on this side of the river. A moment later, the tall servant relayed the message in runic. Only Frey are permitted to possess weapons west of the burn. Cast yours into the river. Herkimer glanced at the gear piled near a stump, and, in a resigned voice, told Wraith, Get your spear, and do as they say. And the sword off your back, the tall servant said. Herkimer looked shocked and glanced over his shoulder as if he'd forgotten the weapon was there. Then he faced the god and spoke directly to him in the Frey language. This is my family blade. I cannot throw it away. The god sneered, showing teeth. It's a sword, the servant insisted. Herkimer hesitated only a moment. Okay, okay, fine. We'll go back across the river right now. Come on, Rafe. The god made an unhappy sound. After you give up the sword, the servant said. Herkimer glared. This copper has been in my family for generations. It's a weapon. Toss it down. Herkimer looked at his son, a sidelong glance. Although he might not have been a good father, wasn't as far as Wraith was concerned, Herkimer had instilled one thing in all his sons. Pride. Self-respect came from the ability to defend oneself. Such things gave a man dignity. In all of Durea, in their entire clan, his father was the only man to wield a sword, a metal blade. Wrought from beaten copper, its marred, dull sheen was the color of a summer sunset. And legend held that the short-bladed heirloom had been mined and fashioned by a genuine Dirg smith. 
in comparison with the god sword, whose hilt was intricately etched and encrusted with gems, the copper blade was pathetic. Still, Herkimer's weapon defined him. Enemy clans knew him as Copper Sword, a feared and respected title. His father could never give up that blade. The roar of the river was cut by the cry of a hawk soaring above. Birds were known to be the embodiment of omens, and Wraith didn't take the soaring wail as a positive sign. In its eerie echo, his father faced the god. I can't give you this sword. Wraith couldn't help but smile. Herkimer, son of Hiemdal of Clan Dorea, wouldn't bend so far, not even for a god. The smaller servant took the horse's lead as the god dismounted. Wraith watched, impossible not to. The way the god moved was mesmerizing, so graceful, fluid, and poised. Despite the impressive movement, the god wasn't physically imposing. He wasn't tall, broad, or muscled. Wraith and his father had built strong shoulders and arms by wielding spear and shield throughout their lives. The god, on the other hand, appeared delicate, as if he had lived bedridden and spoon-fed. If the fray were a man, Wraith wouldn't have been afraid. Given the disparity between them in weight and height, he'd avoid a fight, even if challenged. To engage in such an unfair match would be cruel, and he wasn't cruel. His brothers had received Wraith's share of that particular trait. You don't understand, Herkimer tried once more to explain. This sword has been handed down from father to son. The god rushed forward and punched Wraith's father in the stomach, doubling him over. Then the fray stole the copper sword, a dull scrape sounding as the weapon came free of its sheath. While Herkimer was catching his breath, the god examined the weapon with revulsion. Shaking his head, the god turned his back on Herkimer to show the tall servant the pitiable blade. Instead of joining the god's ridicule of the weapon, the servant cringed. Wraith saw the future through the weasel man's expression, for he was the first to notice Herkimer's reaction. Wraith's father drew the skinning knife from his belt and lunged. This time the god didn't disappoint. With astounding speed, he whirled and drove the copper blade into Wraith's father's chest. Herkimer's forward momentum did the work of running the sword deep. The fight ended the moment it began. His father gasped and fell, the sword still in his chest. Wraith didn't think. If he had paused, even for an instant, he might have reconsidered, but there was more of his father in him than he wanted to believe. The sword being the only weapon within reach, he pulled the copper from his father's body. With all his might, Wraith swung at the god's neck. He fully expected the blade to cut clean through, but the copper sliced only air as the divine being dodged. The god drew his own weapon as Wraith swung again. The two swords met. A dull ping sounded, 
and the weight in Wraith's hands vanished, along with most of the blade. When he finished his swing, only the hilt of his family's heritage remained. The rest flew through the air and landed in a tuft of young pines. The god stared at him with a disgusted smirk, then spoke in the divine language. Not worth dying for, was it? Then the god raised his blade once more as Wraith shuffled backward. Too slow, too slow. His retreat was futile. Wraith was dead. Years of combat training told him so. In that instant, before understanding became reality, he had the chance to regret his entire life. I've done nothing, he thought, as his muscles tightened for the expected burst of pain. It never came. Wraith had lost track of the servants. So had the god. Neither of the combatants expected nor saw the tall, weasel-faced man slam his master in the back of the head with a river rock the size and shape of a round loaf of bread. Wraith realized what had happened only after the god collapsed, revealing the servant and his stone. Run, the rock bearer said. With any luck, his head will hurt too much for him to chase us when he wakes. What have you done? The other servant shouted, his eyes wide as he backed up, pulling the god's horse away. Calm down, the one holding the rock told the other servant. Wraith looked at his father, lying on his back. Herkimer's eyes were still open, as if watching clouds. Wraith had cursed his father many times over the years. The man neglected his family, pitted his sons against each other, and had been away when Wraith's mother and sister died. In some ways, many ways, Wraith hated his father. But at that moment, what he saw was a man who had taught his sons to fight and not give in. Herkimer had done the best with what he had, and what he had was a life trapped on barren soil because the gods made capricious demands. Wraith's father never stole, cheated, or held his tongue when something needed to be said. He was a hard man, a cold man, but one who had the courage to stand up for himself and what was right. What Wraith saw on the ground at his feet was the last of his dead family. He felt the broken sword in his hands. No! The servant holding the horse cried out as Wraith drove the remainder of the jagged copper blade through the god's throat. Both servants had fled, the smaller one on the horse and the other chasing on foot. Now the one who had wielded the rock returned. Covered in sweat and shaking his head, he trotted back to the meadow. Merrill's gone, he said. He isn't the best rider, but he doesn't have to be. The horse knows its way back to Alan Rist. He stopped after noticing Wraith. What are you doing? Wraith was standing over the body of the god. He'd picked up the Frey's sword and was pressing the tip against the god's throat. Waiting. How long does it usually take? How long does what take? For him to get up. He's dead. Dead people don't generally get up, the servant said. 
Reluctant to take his eyes off the god, Wraith ventured only the briefest glance at the servant, who was bent and struggling to catch his breath. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I want to know how long we have before he rises. If I cut off his head, will he stay down longer? The servant rolled his eyes. He's not getting up. You killed him. My tetlin ass, that's a god. Gods don't die, they're immortal. Really, not so much, the servant said, and to Wraith's shock, he kicked the god's body, which barely moved. He kicked it again, and the head rocked to one side, sand sticking to its cheek. See? Dead. Get it? Not immortal. Not a god, just a fray. They die. There's a difference between long-lived and immortal. Immortal means you can't die, even if you want to. Fact is, the Frey are a lot more similar to runes than we'd like to think. We're nothing alike. Look at him. Wraith pointed at the fallen Frey. Oh, yes, the servant replied. He's so different. He has only one head, walks on two feet, and has two hands and ten fingers. You're right. Nothing like us at all. The servant looked down at the body and sighed. His name was Shagon, an incredibly talented harp player, a cheat at cards, and a bredithine mirror, which is to say... The servant paused. Nope, there is no other way to say it. He wasn't well liked, and now he's dead. Wraith looked over suspiciously. Is he lying? Trying to put me off guard? You're wrong. Wraith said with full conviction. Have you ever seen a dead fray? I haven't. My father hasn't. No one I've ever known has. And they don't age. They do, just very slowly. Wraith shook his head. No, they don't. My father mentioned a time when he was a boy, and he met a fray named Neeson. Forty-five years later they met again, but Neeson looked exactly the same. Of course he did. I just told you, they age slowly. Frey can live for thousands of years. A bumblebee lives for only a few months. To a bumblebee, you appear immortal. Wraith wasn't fully convinced, but it would explain the blood. He hadn't expected any. In retrospect, he shouldn't have attacked the Frey at all. His father had taught him not to start a fight he couldn't win, and fighting an immortal god fell squarely into that category. But then again, it was his father who had started the whole thing. Sure is a lot of blood. An ugly pool had formed underneath the god, staining the grass and his glistening robes. His neck still had the gash, a nasty, jagged tear like a second mouth. Wraith had expected the wound to miraculously heal or simply vanish. When the god rose, Wraith would have the advantage. He was strong, and could best most men in Durea, which meant he could best most men. Even his father thought twice about making his son too angry. Wraith stared down at the fray, whose eyes were open and rolled up. The gash in his throat was wider now. A god, a real god, would never permit kicks from a servant. Okay, maybe they aren't immortal. He relaxed and took a step back. My name is Malcolm, the servant said. Yours is Wraith. Uh-huh, Wraith said. 
With one last glare at the Frey's corpse, Wraith tucked the jeweled weapon into his belt and then lifted his father's body. Now what are you doing? Malcolm asked. Can't bury him down here. These rivers are bound to flood this plain. Bury him? When word gets back to Alan Rist, the Frey will... He looked sick. We need to leave. So go. Wraith carried his father to a small hill in the meadow and gently lowered him to the ground. As a final resting place, it wasn't much, but would have to do. Turning around, he found the god's ex-servant staring in disbelief. What? Malcolm started to laugh, then stopped, confused. You don't understand. Glynn is a fast horse and has the stamina of a wolf. Merrill will reach Alan Rist by nightfall. He'll tell the Instaria everything to save himself. They'll come after us. We need to get moving. Go ahead, Wraith said, taking Herkimer's medal and putting it on. Then he closed his father's eyes. He couldn't remember having touched the old man's face before. You need to go too. After I bury my father. The rune is dead. Wraith cringed at the word. He was a man. Rune, man, same thing. Not to me and not to him. Wraith strode down to the riverbank, littered with thousands of rocks of various sizes. The problem wasn't finding proper stones, but deciding which ones to choose. Malcolm planted his hands on his hips, glaring with an expression somewhere between astonishment and anger. It'll take hours. You're wasting time. Wraith crouched and picked up a rock. The top had been baked warm by the sun. The bottom was damp, cool, and covered in wet sand. He deserves a proper burial, and would have done the same for me. Wraith found it ironic, given that his father had rarely shown any kindness. But it was true. Herkimer would have faced death to see his son properly buried. Besides, do you have any idea what can happen to the spirit of an unburied body? The man stared back, bewildered. They return as manes to haunt you for not showing the proper respect. And manes can be vicious. Wraith hoisted another large, sand-colored rock and walked up the slope. My father could be a real cull when he was alive. I don't need him stalking me for the rest of my life. But, but what? Wraith set the rocks down near his father's shoulders. He'd do the outline before starting the pile. He's not your father. I don't expect you to stay. That's not the point. What is the point? The servant hesitated, and Wraith took the opportunity to return to the bank and search for more rocks. I need your help, the man finally said. Wraith picked up a large stone and carried it up the bank, clutched against his stomach. With what? You know how to, well, you know, live. Out here, I mean. The servant looked at the deer carcass, which had gathered a host of flies. You can hunt, cook, and find shelter, right? 
You know what berries to eat, which animals you can pet, and which to run away from. You don't pet any animals. See? Good example of how little I know about this sort of thing. Alone, I'd be dead in a day or two. Frozen stiff, buried in a landslide, or gored by some antlered beast. Wraith set the stone and returned down the slope, clapping his hands together to clean off the sand. Makes sense. Of course it makes sense. I'm a sensible fellow, and if you were sensible, we'd go. Now. Wraith lifted another rock. If you're bent on sticking with me, and in such a hurry, you might consider helping. The man looked at the riverbank's rounded stones and sighed. Do we have to use such big ones? Big ones for the bottom, smaller ones on top. Sounds like you've done this before. People die often where I come from, and we have a lot of rocks. Wraith wiped his brow with his forearm, pushing back a mat of dark hair. He'd rolled the woolen sleeves of his undertunic up. The spring days were still chilly, but the work made him sweat. He considered taking off his Lee Moore and leather, but decided against it. Burying his father should be an unpleasant task and a good son should feel something at such a time. If uncomfortable was the best he could manage, Wraith would settle for that. Malcolm carried over a pair of rocks and set them down, letting Wraith place them. He paused to rub his hands clean. Okay, Malcolm, Wraith said, you need to pick bigger ones or we'll be here forever. Malcolm scowled but returned to the bank, gathered two good-sized stones, and carried them under his arms like melons. He walked unsteadily in sandals. Thin, with a simple strap, they were ill-suited to the landscape. Wraith's clothes were shoddy, sewn scraps of wool with leather accents that he'd cured himself, but at least they were durable. Wraith searched for and found a small, smooth stone. I thought you wanted bigger rocks, Malcolm asked. This isn't for the pile. Wraith opened his father's right hand and exchanged the rock for the skinning knife. He'll need it to get to Rel, or Elysian, if he's worthy. Nifril, if he's not. Oh, right. After outlining the body, Wraith piled the stones from the feet upward. Then he retrieved his father's Lee Moore, which still lay next to the deer's carcass, and laid it over Herkimer's face. A quick search in the little patch of pines produced the other end of the copper sword. Wraith considered leaving the weapon, but worried about grave robbers. His father had died for the shattered blade. It deserved to be cared for. Wraith glanced at the fray once more. You're certain he won't get up? Malcolm looked over from where he was lifting a rock. Positive. Shagon is dead. Together they hoisted a dozen more rocks onto the growing pile before Wraith asked, Why were you with him? Malcolm pointed to the torque around his neck as if it explained everything. Wraith was puzzled until he noticed the necklace was a complete circle. The ring of metal wasn't a torque not jewellery at all. It was a collar. 
Not a servant, a slave. The sun was low in the sky when they dropped the last rocks to complete the mound. Malcolm washed in the river while Wraith sang his morning song. Then he slung his father's broken blade over his shoulder, adjusted the fray's sword in his belt, and gathered his things and those of his father. They didn't have much. A wooden shield, a bag containing a good hammerstone, a rabbit pelt Wraith planned to make into a pouch as soon as it cured, the last of the cheese, a single blanket they had shared, a stone hand axe, his father's knife, and Wraith's spear. Where to? Malcolm asked. His face and hair were covered in sweat, and the man had nothing, not even a sharpened stick to defend himself. Here, sling this blanket over your shoulder. Tie it tight and take my spear. I don't know how to use the spear. It's not complicated, just point and stick. Wraith looked around. Going home didn't make sense. That was back east, closer to Alan Rist. Besides, his family was gone. The clan would still welcome him, but it was impossible to build a life in Durea. Another option would be to push farther west into the untamed wilderness of Averlin. To do so, they'd need to get past a series of fray outposts along the western rivers. Like Alan Rist, the strongholds were built to keep men out. Herkimer had warned Wraith about the fortifications of Meredith and Sion Hall, but his father never explained exactly where those were. By himself, Wraith could likely avoid walking into one, but he wouldn't have much of a life alone in the wilderness. Taking Malcolm wouldn't help. By the look and sound of the ex-slave, he wouldn't survive a year in the wild. We'll cross back into Ruland, but go south. He pointed over the river at the dramatic rising hillside covered with evergreens. That's the Crescent Forest. Runs for miles in all directions. Not the safest place, but it'll provide cover. Help hide us. He glanced up at the sky. Still early in the season, but there should be some food to forage and game to hunt. What do you mean by not the safest place? Well, I've not been there myself, but I've heard things. What sorts of things? Wraith tightened his belt and the strap holding the copper to his back before offering a shrug. Oh, uh, you know, tabers, row, leshies, stuff like that. Malcolm continued to stare. Vicious animals? Oh, yeah, those two, I suppose. Those two? Sure. Bound to be in a forest that size. Oh, Malcolm said, looking apprehensive as his eyes followed a branch floating past them at a quick pace. How will we get across? You can swim, right? Malcolm looked stunned. That's a thousand feet from bank to bank. It has a nice current, too. Depending on how well you swim, we'll probably reach the far side several miles south of here. But that's good. It'll make us harder to track. Impossible, I'd imagine, Malcolm said, grimacing, his sight chained to the river. The ex-slave of the fray looked terrified 
and Wraith understood why. He'd felt the same way when Herkimer had forced him across. Ready? Wraith asked. Malcolm pursed his lips. The skin of his hands was white as he clutched the spear. You realize this water is cold? Comes down as snowmelt from Mount Mador. Not only that, Wraith added, but since we're going to be hunted, we won't be able to make a fire when we get out. The slender man with the pointed nose and narrow eyes forced a tight smile. Lovely. Thanks for the reminder. You up for this? Wraith asked as he led the way into the icy water. I'll admit it's not my typical day. The sound of his words rose in octaves as he waded into the river. What was your typical day like? Wraith gritted his teeth as the water reached knee depth. The current churned around his legs and pushed, forcing him to dig his feet into the riverbed. Mostly, I poured wine. Wraith chuckled. Yeah, this will be different. A moment later, the river pulled both of them off their feet. We hope you enjoyed this free preview of Age of Myth, book one in the Legends of the First Empire series. To keep the story going, get the complete book today.